We're thrilled to announce Sinisterhood has been invited to sit on Podcast Row at CrimeCon House Arrest on Saturday, November 21st. CrimeCon House Arrest is a fully immersive, interactive online experience that will incorporate all of the best things about CrimeCon, all from the comfort of your home. Head to CrimeCon. Head to CrimeCon.com slash house arrest and use Sinister 2020 for 10% off your registration, which gets you access to all the amazing things CrimeCon has to offer. We'll see you Saturday, November 21st. Remember, just head to CrimeCon.com forward slash house arrest and use code Sinister 2020 for 10% off. With one victim on the run for his life, the men from the Sun Gym had their eye on new targets to fund their lifestyle. They found an extremely wealthy and generous man, his devoted and loving girlfriend, and their incredible yellow Lamborghini. But even with the best of plans, once again the gang made mistake after mistake, this time with deadly consequences. This week's episode is The Sun Gym Gang Murders, Pain and Gain, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, I feel silly because I remembered after we recorded and then again after the episode came out and I started getting flooded with text messages and DMs that there are several actresses that people for years have always said, (laughs) if I were to, if anyone was to play me, they should play me. And of course, we always talk about Brian and Brian texted me and all it said was, I have told you for years, it's either... Anna Klumsky or Busy Phillips. And I was yes, like, we- oh, yes. And then he was like, your listeners probably hate that y'all always talk about me. But you're right every <laughs> time that I'm screaming at <laughs> at whatever he's listening to. And then another one of my friends messaged me and was like, I've always thought it was Anna Klumsky. I was like, yeah. yep. So, um, and then Drew Barrymore and Alicia Silverstone were the other two. And you know what? All of these fantastic actresses. Mm-hmm. gorgeous women i'd be thrilled for any of them to play me so thank you everyone we also got several reese witherspoons for you they, oh they you know what i thought about reese witherspoon but then i thought of all the movies she's been in, and then she's usually like so sweet <laughs> she'd have to turn up the sass i think i mean and she's very sassy in um big little lies mm-hmm. okay so maybe a combo that but i love her and yeah, she's I, great oh gosh I, I just love her yeah i love I love any of them. Currently, I feel like Job of the Hut would play me. That's no, where sure. I'm at in this pregnancy. <laughs> so, any you of, have a whole human in you. Any of these other, uh, any of these other people would be great, dude. This human is something's going on in there. <laughs> Tap dancing, soccer playing, something. I sent you that gif of just Gorney yes. Weaver with the alien coming. I'm like, this is what is <laughs> happening inside my body right now. It is. He is so much more active than Ella was very active too. But he is just like, man, wakes me up all the time. It's it's wild. He's doing so. It's not even like it. you're listening to music and he's like getting stoked about no. it. It's just all constantly. Yeah, he's just doing his thing, and he's a night owl. So when oh, I'm nice. trying to go to bed, he's like, "It's party time! Wake up, mom!" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this is part two of this series, which is 
quite such a wild story. Yeah. The more I started reading about the movie, too, because you've seen it, we talked about, I haven't. Mm -hmm. I was like, damn, they intended for it to be a dark comedy. It wasn't just like that accidentally happened. No. And then I read the whole complaint of the lawsuit that we'll talk about. And then also Michael Bay's deposition. And it was purposefully, they were purposefully trying to make it funny. Yeah. It was not just, here's a story we're telling and the irony of the actions and behaviors will speak for themselves. They asked themselves, how do we turn up the wacky? Yeah. And you see actual murders on screen that were human people with real friends and family and loved ones. And you think, yeah, maybe things don't need to be wacky. No. I don't know. A lot of reviews likened it to how like Fargo or, or something like that, just like that dark comedy, which the difference is those are completely fictional. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction isn't based on real people. No. You know, and I mean, they didn't even change the names in this one. So mm-hmm. it is weird that what the one of the main sources we've referenced for this is that Miami New Times three-parter. That's what Michael Bay mm-hmm. uh, got the rights to to base this on. And it's just, it's it's interesting that someone, and perhaps it's because he sees things through a different creative lens, would look at this and go, this would be funny. Yeah, and he claimed in his deposition, because of course he doesn't want to be liable, that it was all the writers and that the writers optioned the, the uh, or New Line Cinema or whatever, Paramount, whoever it was. Viacom, the, I think, wasn't Viac- it? Yeah, yeah, and Viacom owns Paramount, so yeah. then their subsidiaries optioned the article and then the screenwriters wrote the script and then brought it to Michael Bay and his job is to punch it up and make it, you know, more interesting, more dynamic, more, you know, funnier. And whether that in so doing, you are kind of besmirching the good name of the mm-hmm. victims and uh, all the victims, both living and dead. Yeah, it's an interesting choice for sure. And the movie got very mixed reviews because of it. And I completely can see why. Genuinely, I think if it, if I didn't know the underlying story and I didn't know it was a true story, it's interesting and it's well made and it does make you think and about you know who's really a hero, who's really a villain. But I think yeah, I get it's upsetting to watch the actual murder of someone be reenacted for comedic effect. Yeah, especially if imagine the family watching that, like yeah. the least what? funny thing that's ever happened in their life is now people are paying to go laugh at. That's all I could think about was Susanna, who's Frank yeah. Riga's sister. And I'm like, Susanna would not love this. No, no, no. No, she, no, no, she wouldn't. Well, if you haven't listened to part one, we implore you to go back and listen to it because there's a lot of information and moving parts and a ton of characters mm-hmm. involved in this story that um, it'll make more sense if you if you binge them <laughs> both together. Always. Always makes more sense. <laughs> Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. A.K.A. Um, Busy Phillips. And someone s- kept sending, I was flattered when they said Julia Louis-Dreyfus, because Anna Klumsky, Chumsky is off of Veep, right? Mm-hmm. She's also they from like, My Girl. Okay, Back yes. Back she started okay. as a child. Yeah, someone said Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, Anna Chlumsky and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It like, it's like C-H-U-M-L-S-K-Y. KY, yes. I think so. The girl, she's from Beach. And then someone, Klumpsky. <laughs> someone said Reese Witherspoon, and um, oh, we just talked about her in the Wheel episode. She's oh, oh, 
Manic Pixie Dream Girl. But it was Zoe Dream. Deschanel? That's nah, the one they said. No. Yeah. No, nope, we're yeah. not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, funny you should say that. Listen to the most recent Wheel <laughs> episode on our Patreon. We have some feelings. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, oh, man. Didn't you once say that someone... What's her name? Linda Cardellini. She's not oh, funny yeah. though. But I was but like, someone oh, mentioned if her. Lindy, if it's Linda Cardellini and Busy, Busy Phillips, then it's like a Freaks and Geek reunion. Yes, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. So good. So uh, yeah, someone messaged. Someone said Busy Phillips should be Christy, and then Linda Cardellini could be you. And I was like, I'm done. I'd be done with that. I like that. She's uh, she's not particularly. I mean, maybe in real life she is funny, but I've never seen her in any really like funny roles. No, I think she normally is the the grounded yeah, character. Yeah, she's more she's she's less absurd. Yeah. Oh man. Speaking of my girl, I saw that in the theater. Oh yeah. I was a child. I that was one of the first movies I can remember really being affected by and just sobbing. Yeah, it seems ups- upsetting for children. It's it's upsetting for anyone, but just when yeah. he goes, when Macaulay Culkin goes back to find that mood ring. Ugh. I'm tearing up thinking about it. And the bees oh, yeah, get him. E. Oh, God. It is like another E.T. It's, it's like Wicker Man. The bees. Oh. Have you seen oh. My Girl? Uh, If I have, it was, I mean, a million years oh, ago when I was little. Well, I know those famous scenes and stuff. Yeah. Though. Oh, it's so sad. And I remember being in the theater watching that with my brothers and mom and, like, being embarrassed to be so upset. So I was mm-hmm. trying to, like, not openly sob. Mm-hmm. And you're just like choking down your sobs but i remember doing that at selena because I, I loved oh, her so yeah. much and i was like sobbing snotting and i went with my my friend and her mom and her mom had brought like snacks and popcorn and pickles and stuff for us and the only like paper towel that she could give me to dry my tears had had a pickle oh, wrapped God. in it <laughs> that makes so it worse <laughs> wiping my face she's just like are you that upset you're like no it's the stinging in my eyes it's burning my <laughs> eyes and also i miss selena which people have been requesting us to cover selena so we should do that soon yeah i've never seen the movie oh I w- i'll be honest i that was not in my wheel that was not in my uh like age range or like pop yeah, culture i guess pop culture i'm trying to think of the word it is it was yeah i was not like i did not know who she was or anything when she passed oh, man. away i was obsessed i told you how CDs. when she died someone at my high school on their car and shoe polish wrote r.i.p selena and i was like oh my god is this a someone, student that died and they're like died. no she's like a really famous singer and i was like <laughs> i just i that wasn't stuff I listened to, so I I wasn't yeah. aware of her really. But man, now I am. Yeah, and it's sure. a fascinating, very sad, tragic story. And she is was a talent who died way before time. Man, I'm gonna go turn on some Selena after this. I do. Uh, I do love her songs now. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I can't. I I'm a fan. I just got there a little late. That's which is fine. That's yeah, fine. As long as you get there eventually. Well, let's get into it. In November of 1994, Mark Schiller was kidnapped, brutally tortured, and eventually left for dead at the scene of an intricately staged car crash. Miraculously, he survived. Upon speaking to longtime P.I. Ed Dubois, Schiller was told to get out of Miami before his captors found him and finished the job. But Danny Lugo, Adrian Dorball, and the rest of the gang had other plans. While Schiller worked on piecing his life back together in another country, the musclehead criminals 
boldly moved into Schiller's old Cutler Cove mansion. Like we said, just very little foresight. (laughs) I think there's... uh, Yeah, I think these people just lived their life in the moment. Yeah, we should all be so present. (laughs) That And, I mean, whether it be ignorance, um, just not being the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, Mm -hmm. or great improvisers... You know, who world class should all be living in the moment. They just didn't think ahead, which uh, came back to bite them in the ass in the end. But at the mm-hmm. time, you're getting, you're living the life, man, because you're not worried about what's going to happen next. You're just like, fuck it. We're moving into this guy's place. We're taking his cars. We're assuming his life. They had almost no consequences. No. So who can blame them? No. Indulging in the newfound lavish lifestyle. Lugo leased an $80,000 gold Mercedes in Jorge Delgado's name, Schiller's one-time friend and business partner who had led the gang to Schiller after he claimed Schiller had stolen $200,000 from him. Lugo even began introducing himself to the neighbors as Tom, explaining that he and the other men they saw frequenting Schiller's home were members of the U.S. security forces and that Schiller and his family had been deported due to legal problems. Not questioning anything, the neighbors bought the ruse, accepting that the house was now the property of the U.S. government. My job now is the scam attorney, and I tell everybody, an actual government official or person that works at the gas company is not going to be offended for you to ask for their badge. Right. I don't even think, from what I saw, no one even questioned it. There wasn't even like, Mm -mm. could I see your badge? They were, Lugo was like, hey, um, if UPS drops something off, do you mind taking coming over here and getting these packages? They're like, sure. Like they were like friendly neighbors. They accepted packages on their behalf. <laughs> Too they, friendly. They were, yes, they were loading up U-Hauls with his shit and taking it places. And they're like, guess it's just what the government does. God. Yeah. <laughs> Between buddying up to the neighbors, installing massive home security systems, and enhancing the curb appeal with expensive landscaping. Lugo and Dorball split time between the Sun Gym and Solid Gold, a popular gentleman's club in North Miami Beach. Both men had their eyes set on two ladies to dance there. Dorball on a beautiful Hungarian woman named Beatrice Weiland, and Lugo on Sabina Petrescu, former runner-up for Miss Romania and an aspiring actress. Lugo wine dined, and blatantly lied to Sabina, telling her he was a music producer that wanted her to star in one of his videos. The two moved in together, and Danny continued to shower her with gifts, despite Lugo being married with a child on the way. But Sabina soon became suspicious of her lover's bizarre work hours and spy equipment, items she didn't think would be necessary for a music producer. To cover his tracks and evade his girlfriend's questions, Danny Lugo told her another lie, that he worked for the CIA. The old, I work for the CIA (laughs) ruse to get the girl. Man, Uh, bold. You know what, though? He, I don't even think he believed, he, I don't think he believed his own lies. Like, no. we always say, like, if you believe it, it's not a lie. George Costanza. But he's just so confident that he's smarter than everyone else and can just sell it that he does, man. That's yeah. what I tell all improv students, fake it till you make it. Just go out there and be confident. <laughs> like, he's, he's living in the moment. He's being super confident. I doubt he's funny, though, 
but well. he might be a good improviser if we put him on stage just based on these characteristics. But like we have no notes for you. You're yeah. doing everything we're supposed to. Also, the music producer line. Ugh, what a classic trope that is. Well, I mean, uh, and uh, I think we have the quote in here, but she was naive, not according yeah. to those around her. And it's hard for me to uh, see things through the lens of a beautiful exotic dancer not from miami you know not from the country even things heather how oh my gosh thank you you. i mean it's true it's true (laughs) i was miss romania actually (laughs) didn't want to tell you guys but who is not as world weary or savvy or you know who hasn't become as cynical as i have i guess you know that but just I, I've had gr- like girlfriends though who go, oh my god, I'm dating this guy, and he told me that he was a blank, and I'm like, give me his name, I'll look him up, and I just am like, no, he's not, he's not a pilot, he's not a cop, he said that he was these things, he's a liar. Here is his criminal background search. But I think not everyone's as paranoid as me. So, <laughs> well, and now you can find out pretty much anything online. Yeah, but you know, I read like she grew up in. Um, in Romania, like watching American spy movies like 007 mm-hmm. and everything. And she really was attracted to that type of lifestyle. And I think if you want that, you, even if you think maybe this is bullshit, maybe you don't question it because you're excited by it. But I honestly think she totally bought into it from what, what we'll see. But yeah, mm-hmm. he, he gave her a beeper. He had his own code for when he needed her. It was 007. So he really, oh, he really leaned into knowing that she was into that kind of stuff and it worked for him. Man. Still recovering in Colombia, Schiller had once again enlisted the help of Ed Dubois, who told him to write down everything he could remember about his torturous tale. As it turned out, Schiller vividly remembered all of it. When the detailed letter and copies of financial statements showing Siller had signed over countless properties and bank accounts arrived at his office, Dubois was shocked to see where the paper trail led, to a longtime acquaintance of Dubois, Jean Meese. I think I would remember pretty much everything that had happened to me, too. I think so, and also because he was blindfolded for such a significant portion, I bet all of his other senses were heightened mm-hmm. that he remembers different voices. He probably remembers specific things that they said mm-hmm. because if they're saying their plans or using certain terms and you're literally all you have to do is sit there with your eyes shut, that you're going to remember it. You know, yeah. it's going to get implanted, implanted in your brain. Mm-hmm. Having known me since high school, Dubois couldn't imagine his pal was involved in such a scandalous and horrific mess decided to set up a meeting to sort things out. Mises' signature was on every document, acting as witness to Schiller signing his life away. At the initial meeting, Mises' memory of how everything transpired was foggy at best, unable to recall the dates he saw people and who had actually been in his office. Admitting that something seemed shady, Mises set up another meeting where he planned to introduce Dubois to Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball. You know they were all shitting their pants. One thing that was hard to kind of discern was if John Meese really knew what was going on. Oh, I think that he did uh, because he worked at the Sun Gym or owned it, right? Yeah, he owned it. And he acted as the notary for all these things. There's He either was taken to the warehouse where he notarized it there. That's true. Or Adrian brought him the paper and said, hey, notarize this after the fact and stamped it and signed his name to it. So it's like either he witnessed it or he lied about witnessing it, in which case the latter 
means that he's at least responsible because he said he witnessed or notarized a thing that he didn't actually see the person sign. It's surprising that he, if he witnessed the, and I never saw anything that said if he did witness Mm -hmm. the actual torture, but it seemed like he was just kind of along for the, he, he was just wrapped up in something and wasn't ever the leader of anything. So yeah. it's surprising that he would have agreed to that kind of stuff. I could see and, it where he's like, oh, I don't know what I'm signing here. I'll just sign whatever. And they lie to him and they're like, oh, this is uh, this is completely on the up and up. It's it's not a big deal or whatever. And then they had a woman come in and say that it was Jorge Delgado's wife when really it wasn't. Or um, Mark, Mark Schiller's Schiller. wife. And it was just an imposter. And when Dubois questioned him about that, he's like, oh, I don't remember when she came in. He's like, well, this date says she came in on this day and she had already left for Columbia. And we have proof that she was out of the country when you're saying that you signed a paper in, in your office with her. And he's like, oh, man, I don't remember. So it was really hard from the article to tell if he was just kind of aloof to the whole thing or if he was completely uh, culpable in this. And I think he at least knew something untoward was going on because you he's a CPA he knows mm-hmm. well enough that you don't need to be witnessing, notarizing if the person who the grantor of either property or a bank account or something is not there, that you are very likely perpetuating a fraud. That's a good point. So, yeah. Of course, he's going to be like, oh, I don't remember, because yeah. he doesn't want to admit that he was like, oh, yeah, I did that crime. I wonder, though, what he was getting out of it. Well, because Lugo and them were helping him with running the gym and yeah. like getting more people in, I guess, allegedly, that was what he was supposed to be doing. And maybe paying rent. You know, there was probably some kind of monetary I gotta imagine there was some kind of monetary compensation going on, yeah. Yeah, that they said, Oh, we'll give you X dollars per thing you sign or percentage or of transfer. Threatened him. Maybe he was That's like, I don't wanna I know what these guys are capable of and I'm not gonna get on their bad side. I'm not trying to get snatched in a Slotsky's parking lot. <laughs> Over the next few days, multiple meetings were set, but nothing seemed to come of them, with Lugo never even showing. Then, by happenstance, one morning Meese left Dubois and the bodyguard he had since hired, alone in a room to wait for Lugo and Dorval. As luck would have it, it was the same room Lugo had used as his office while planning Schiller's kidnapping. You could not write a fake movie with no. something. When like I read this. that I was like, This is yeah, this is something out of the movies. Which I can understand why you would read this and be like, Oh, we gotta make this into a movie. Mm-hmm. Just don't make it funny. You know, (laughs) discovering a treasure trove of incriminating evidence in the trash can, Dubois and his bodyguards stuffed their pockets full, determined to get the Sun Jim gang to confess. But it seemed that wouldn't be necessary. When Delgado finally showed up to the meeting, he told Dubois he was done talking and agreed to give Schiller's $1.26 million back from the offshore accounts he had signed over. The catch? Both Dubois and Schiller would have to sign an agreement that they would never speak of these crimes to anyone, especially not to the police. I'm just going to let you know that's not enforceable. (laughs) Again, they're very nearsighted and and don't understand how things work. I love Ed Dubois because he's like, yeah, I would love to sign that. Yeah, let's do it. And immediately call the cops. Where's the pen? Schiller wasn't buying it. Furthermore, he saw it as a way for the gang to gain access to him so they could finally kill him. Schiller wasn't wrong. Lugo's plan was, in fact, to bamboozle him once again. This time, the conman bodybuilder planned to sneakily alter the contract to read 1.26 million lira 
instead of $1.26 million, meaning Schiller would effectively sign an agreement for $1,200. Again, that's not enforceable. I feel like this is something <laughs> that a teenager would be like, wait Ugh. a second, I got a great idea for He's like, I'm going to make it say 1.26 million pennies. <laughs> but like, at the same time, not- like something that simple could work if these guys weren't the guys that they are. No, They're I mean, a little you bit just smarter. Go- you would say that that's there's no meeting of the mind, so there's no contract because I intended one point six million dollars. We agreed to that. You altered the contract. We it's either an error or it's fraud, but either way, it's not enforceable. What if he changes it to Lyra? Schiller signs it because nobody catches it, and then he doesn't read it. Do you take it in front of a judge? They're like, he signed this. It says Lyra. That's not enforceable. Yeah, you would say either try to prove with extrinsic evidence and say you know, what we had was this agreement and then the judge would likely weigh the evidence in the favor of that's an insane thing. Why at any point would it be Lyra? Like the judge would just go, that's like nonsense. It's clearly a fraud. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're right though. I mean, you're supposed to read everything you sign, Mm -hmm. but when you have, you know, pre contract extrinsic evidence that says, okay, we're going to make sure to send the money back. Okay. We totally will. We're going to draft the contract and they try to pull a fast one. That's when you, there's going to be lawsuits. Yeah. But you know Lugo was like, thought he was this just oh, yeah. the big dick in the room when he came up with that idea. He's like, I got it. Light bulbs were going out. off everywhere. God. The contract revisions between Schiller and Lugo went back and forth for days via Dubois and Lugo's attorney. Fed up with no money being exchanged, Dubois eventually threatened legal action against the gang unless they handed over the title to his client's house. Not wanting any problem with the cops, Lugo agreed. However, by then, the damage had been done. The gang had looted Schiller's mansion of basically everything, right down to the Christmas tree and light switch covers. That's some Grinch-level bullshit. <laughs> Still on the Christmas tree? <laughs> yeah. Come on now. They took, they took their honeymoon albums. They took their family photos, all the Christmas decorations, the Christmas tree. They even, they took every last stocking Cindy Lou Who's. Mm-hmm. I just watched battle. The Grinch the other day. They took Ella. the roast beast. Oh, I like the animated. The yes. the live action one gives me the heebie-jeebies. Hate it. Hated it. I love. Um, <laughs> Don't like uh, the makeup. Uh, no, I like uh, the original old, old that Grinch great. cartoon. Yeah. And then the new one is very cute. I watched it recently and I, with Sydney. It was very cute. Yes, I've seen it several times with Ella. It is cute. Who is the Grinch in that one? Oh, it's a famous person. Yeah, I, I can't I think of the name, but yeah. I do like Jim Carrey as the Grinch in the live yeah. action one. I just can't stand the Who's. Their they're faces. They're isn't William creepy. H. Macy one of the Who's? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. No. No, thank you. <laughs> it's unsettling. Yeah. Mm-mm. I'm out. I'm I don't, out. I don't like it. I've prefer nope. animation when it comes to that and that faith hill song in that is a song that i hate love you know Which where you one? listen to it so this is christmas oh, where, where, where yeah. are you christmas where That's are what you it is. christmas yeah oh man i hate it but then you hear it and it just hits me in the feelings yeah. and i'm like god damn it i hate this song but i can't <laughs> hate it it's about christmas i know except for the little drummer boy which i do hate <laughs> i told tommy that he goes it's the best song best christmas that's song what there paris is. said i'm highly outnumbered <laughs> again on this. listen to our uh, most recent wheel and you'll hear it's one of the suggestions we got were was unpopular opinions 
Yes. So that's where all these are coming from, as well as movies that we hate that others love, which are probably also unpopular opinions. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but then we rounded it out with the best Thanksgiving side. So we've got some fun, happy stuff in there, too. <laughs> but also, if you got some like rage you need to get out, <laughs> turn it on. <laughs> Yell back at us. Realizing Schiller had been right and that the gang never intended to return the money, Dubois decided to take everything he knew to the police. However, the cops didn't believe the ludicrous allegations and repeatedly blew off Dubois and Schiller, who had flown to Miami from Columbia to take a polygraph, something that never even ended up happening. Helpless and enraged, Dubois continued to plead with authorities to investigate his client's case, telling them that with each passing moment, Lugo and his gang of criminal misfits were most certainly targeting their next victim. As it turned out, he was right. Ed Dubois, we should also point out, was not some schmuck off the street. He Mm -mm. had been a private investigator for 40 or 50 years, like forever. He grew up in Miami, too. He knew the lay of the land. He knew people there. He was tight with, like, a ton of cops and stuff. That's why he went to, like, his friends in the force and was like, you need to investigate this. And some would kind of, like, listen for a minute, but then it would be like, nah, we can't really do anything about this. This Yeah, this is too much. They're like, what do you mean he stole a house? They're like, he stole a whole fucking <laughs> yeah, house. Yeah, I know it's insane, but it really did happen. Yeah, it's like, this so should be a movie. He's like, it probably will be, but that doesn't mean that it didn't still happen. Ed Harris will play me. It will be great. <laughs> Just you wait. But yeah, it's so mind boggling that he had so much paperwork mm-hmm. to back it up and it still didn't get investigated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, one, um, uh, one cop or she, a detective finally did start investigating it and she even saw like the paper trail and how it was all connected but then it just kind of stopped there no one mm-hmm. did anything about it after that so yeah it's egregious criminal action and just to go well we don't really we don't know it yeah. seems weird especially when it leads to other people losing their lives yep that's the that is where it does it's what it does lead to Adrian Dorball had begun dating Beatrice Wyland, the dancer from Solid Gold he had long admired. One day as Dorball mindlessly looked through a photo album at her apartment, a picture suddenly caught his eye. A bright yellow, $250,000 1991 Lamborghini Diablo. Beatrice said it belonged to her former lover, Frank Griga, the most generous man she'd ever known, according to the Miami New Times. Born in Berlin in 1961. Griga had moved to New York City in the mid-80s, where he worked as a car mechanic. In 1988, he moved to Miami, where he began working at a luxury car dealership. Wanting to have the money to own the cars and not just sell them, Griga began making a name for himself in the 800 and 900 phone line industry. By far the most profitable were the phone sex lines, earning Griga and his business partner $3 million in 1994. This is a, his sister describes as like classic rags to riches, like came with nothing in his pockets and then he had a Lambo. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if there's one thing we all know, it's that uh, sex sells. It's the oldest industry in in the world. So yeah, he had some other Hungarian connections in Miami and they kind of all went into these businesses together and were just banking. Mm Mm-hmm. The phone sex lines. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean... You're paying five bucks a minute to... Well, the first minute's free. To, but yeah. <laughs> the first minute isn't getting you to where you need to be, though. 
<laughs> Hopefully not. It's just like, hi, what's your name? Yeah, it's just that. And you're like, like why do y'all talk so slow? It's like, because we're trying to keep we're you on getting the phone. paid by the minute. I'd be the worst phone sex operator because I talk so fast. Yeah, they'd be like, Heather, that was 15 seconds. And <laughs> your numbers are down. I'm like, I'm good. I'm real good. It's like, no, really, you're bad, though, because we need them on the phone for much longer to make our money. Damn it. They need, um, What's his name from Ferris Bueller? Ben Stein. <laughs> what are you wearing now? <laughs> Jerk it. Jerk it. <laughs> Can you imagine anyone you get you call a phone sex line and that's what you get? <laughs> As someone who's never called a phone sex line, I don't really know what happens. Do people are those a thing still? I, I think imagine so. they are. I think so. Now There's I mean whole... you just have anything you want at the end on the internet yeah well i think now it's cam girls or the cam oh, girls are the yeah. phone sex of today or like only fans and stuff yeah even even like twitch does girls that just like will sit there in their lingerie and like eat food or oh. or just like answer questions and stuff dibs I'll just, I'm telling you, I want people to pay money to just watch me eat, like bowl of spaghetti. Okay, but you got to be in like um, a lacy uh, bra and underwear number to do it. Done and done. Which is, not, this is what I not look my like. thing. This is not my thing. <laughs> if I can sit with uh, my yoga pants on, no bra, and an oversized t shirt yes. and just eat grilled cheeses and get paid, sign me up if you, you want to watch that mess. The magic of the internet. There's there's a fetish for everybody. Oh yeah, yeah. If you can think it, somebody's into it. That's what I, I think that all the time. Mm-hmm. I'll think of like something just really messed up, and I'm like, somewhere, someone is super into that. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Frank's sister Susanna told Forty Eight Hours that her brother loved fast cars and beautiful girls. One of those beautiful girls was his 23 year old girlfriend, Christina Furton a dancer at the Crazy Horse 2 Gentlemen's Club. Christina loved animals, swimming, and planned to become a professional diver, according to 48 Hours. Dorball began to quiz Beatrice about Frank's whereabouts, something that didn't sit well with her. She had already been having doubts about the relationship due to the weapons Dorball always carried, and she didn't believe for a second he worked for the CIA, like he claimed. To get Dorball off her back, she agreed to have her ex-husband, Attila Wyland, Introduce him to Frank Griega. Shortly after setting up the meeting, Beatrice broke up with Dorball, fed up with his lies and inability to keep an erection due to his steroid use. You know, she was getting interviewed and was like, I, I broke up with him for two reasons. <laughs> yeah, she made sure to get that in there. And that's something that's mentioned a lot in the research that I did, that he did so many steroids. He was mm-hmm. he was uh, like 5'7". He was not very tall, but mm-hmm. he they're like... He was as wide as he was tall. He yeah. was fucking ripped, but it was because he was juiced up all the time and mm. he couldn't get it up. And it was an issue with um, Cindy El- Eldridge, who he was with before Beatrice Weil- Weiland. They had an issue, too. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he gets back with Cindy and, and marries her. But, yeah, um, she's like, it's not just the gun in your car. It's. The lack of gun in your pants that is the <laughs> reason not, I'm wake, breaking up with you. <laughs> there's not a gun in your pants, no. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I did not feel anything. But yeah, there's documentaries on like steroid use and the emotional toll too. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely starts to have an effect, I think, on 
decision making yes. skills and yeah. rage. Rage, yep. Went to uh Texas Tech with a guy named Rodney that would drive down to Mexico to get <gasps> steroids and everyone called him Roydney. Okay, that's a great nickname. Though. <laughs> <laughs> but he was also bare he was probably five six, five seven, huge and uh had some rage. <laughs> There's a I think it's a 1990s, and I believe it's Ben Affleck made for TV movie where he does steroids and it makes him like push his girlfriend down or something. And I remember seeing that as a young child and being scared. Oh, I haven't seen that. I ben love- Affleck raging out on steroids is. I think. Good. That- oh, Ben Affleck. <laughs> okay. That, not- that makes more sense in terms of casting. I was thinking Ben Stiller. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were thinking Ben Stein from earlier. <laughs> Even better. I'm so mad but I was right like, now. Ben Stiller could never shoot up steroids and push somebody down. Uh, the Ben Affleck casting makes more sense just because he's cast in more roles like that. But I, don't, yes. I didn't see that. Yeah. Like any good right-hand man, Doorbell had told Danny Lugo all about Frank Griga and his wealth. This solidified things, and Griga became the duo's next target. The plan was to kidnap both Griga and his girlfriend, Christina. Lugo even enlisted the help of his mistress, Sabina Petresco, to help in the plan, telling her this was a CIA mission and that Frank Griga was a terrorist. And I mean, again, Sabina, just do you think the CIA enlists the help of a civilian to take down a terrorist? She 100% did and was very excited. In fact, before this happened, there was another target that they had that they somebody from sun gym that was wealthy but it he kept traveling too much for them to be able to apprehend him but she was really bummed that she didn't get to help them in that one which they also said was a cia mission so she begged to be a part of this one because she, think- she thought she was like doing it for america yeah i think she really did believe it. you're yeah. right yeah, yeah. but no. i'm saying just from a World weary standpoint, really? I mean, that's she believed it. Bless her heart, as we say in Texas. Bless think, her little I heart. I think there was probably a lot of gaslighting and manipulation oh, yeah. involved for someone that English is their second language. They're not from here. They probably yeah. don't understand how everything works. I am from here, and I don't understand how everything works. <laughs> well, and also, if you have a person flashing money and mm-hmm. cars and seemingly unlimited access to everything, you, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps you would be like, okay, well. Yeah. Beatrice, on the other hand, was like, I don't think you work for the CIA. Because they both of them told these women they were CIA operatives. And, that's, and they, they lived really close to each other because the CIA thought it would be easier if they could just go back and forth and pick each other up. Like they had oh, it all. They had a whole they all story. Had it all planned out. It's, it really is like two teenagers coming up with this intricate lie of where you were the night before mm-hmm. to yeah. tell your parents like, okay, you're going to tell them I was spending that at your house. I'm going to tell them you're spending that at my house. You, you, you got to get everybody's story straight. Yeah, that's luckily Beatrice bounced and has PP didn't work, so she was done. But <laughs> on May twenty fourth, nineteen ninety five, Attila Wyland set up a meeting between Frank Griga, Danny Lugo, and Adrian Dorball. Dressed to the nines, Lugo and Dorball presented Frank with a too good to be true investment scheme involving phone lines in India. However, the real plan was to repeat the Schiller kidnapping plot. Yeah, I think they told him it was a guaranteed 20% return mm-hmm. on the investment. And, I mean, normally you'd think that that sounds like a good 
a good investment scheme, but then you you know you're meeting with these two. Who knows what they said to him? And he, if he's a businessman, he said that they were they were very convincing, and that they he even commented on how nice they were dressed. Uh, Lugo was wearing the two hundred thousand dollar Rolex he had stolen from Schiller. So I mean, they looked the part for sure. Yeah, especially with stuff like that. Those the little touches where mm-hmm. a person who drives a two hundred something thousand dollar Lamborghini would recognize a watch like mm-hmm. that. Who's pulling up in an eighty thousand dollar gold Mercedes? Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. they they looked the part for sure. But he started to have things checked out by his lawyers and other things, and I think a little doubt started to creep in. But they were pretty persistent, and they would give him gifts, like they gave him a laptop, and he even was remarked like, "This is very strange." That mm. They're giving me all these things, but eventually they got them to agree to a business meeting. Sinisterhood will be right back. The holidays are coming up, and there's no better way to manage the stresses that can bring than with a CBD routine from Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web is the world's most trusted hemp extract, and now you can use the code CREEPY for 15% off their entire selection of amazing products, excluding bulk products and bundles. You can choose from a selection of topical skincare products, gummies, and traditional oils, all made to support you day-to-day, moment-to-moment. I love the mint chocolate hemp oil. It is great to help calm everyday stresses, which, like we said, the holidays can bring lots of. It brings a lot of joy, too. If you want to bring that instead of stress, drop a couple things in a person's stocking. Be a little CBD Santa this year. You can do all (laughs) your, your Christmas shopping right on their website. There's something for everyone, including pets that's right and i use uh, i've got was my own santa because i got some cbd medic back and neck pain relief ointment it gives me targeted temporary back and neck relief and helps soothe all of the stresses i keep in my shoulders uh just from the world in general and life and existence and, and carrying everything that, like that big bag of toys on your back that's right <laughs> the good thing about charlotte's web is its products are all free of eight major allergens not tested on animals gluten-free And their topical products are formulated without synthetic fragrances, artificial colors or dyes, sulfates, or GMOs. If you've been following the latest with my dogs, Kate and Betty, (laughs) and their progression with the Charlotte's Web um, CBD Chews for Senior Dogs, you know that they recently did a TED Talk. They have Mm -hmm. since moved out of the house. They're they're living the life. Um, I just heard they have been enlisted to help Santa this year. Oh, have they? They've... They've taken Blitzen and Dancer's spots on the reins. And that's so <laughs> I'm glad that they're safe for dogs. They have stuff safe for dogs and pets because now all the reindeer and doggies can have something too on Christmas. That's right. It's a, a gift for everyone that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a great gift for yourself, your friends, your family, or even your pets so that they can join Santa's crew as well. Please try the world's most trusted hemp extract by going to charlottesweb.com and entering code CREEPY for 15% off. After several unsurprising botched attempts at apprehending the couple, Lugo and Dorball finally got Frank and Christina to agree to a dinner meeting to discuss their lucrative business venture. On the evening of May 24, 1995, Lugo and Dorbell met at Frank's mansion to head out to Shula's Steakhouse. The scene at the home was busy, with several neighbors stopping by to say hello, and Frank's housekeeper also showing up. All visitors were introduced to the unfamiliar muscular men in the room, Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorbell. 
again, no foresight that they have now been seen mm-hmm. as the last people with these un- mm-hmm. th- unfortunate things about to happen by like five people. Yeah, so many. <laughs> and uh, their real names, they've never not given their real names to anybody. Mm-mm. Yeah. And they have their car with the license plate. I mean, it's all God. a very recognizable. They, they they stand out in a crowd. These oh, are yeah. people that can just go commit a crime. And everyone's like, I don't remember remember what they look like or what they are driving. They're driving a freaking gold Mercedes around. And they're, they're huge. They're huge men dressed in Armani suits wearing Rolexes. You're going to remember them. Mm-hmm. Soon the foursome set out for dinner, Frank and Christina following the conmen in their yellow Lambo. When they arrived at Shula's, they found it closed and instead went to Dorball's townhome to discuss the deal. As Lugo and Christina watched TV on the couch, Dorball and Frank went to the bedroom to discuss business. Before long, yelling and things crashing could be heard coming from the room. Upon rushing into the room, Christina found Frank bleeding from the head and blood splattered on the walls, Dorball having smashed a blunt object over his head. Expert testimony provided at the trial showed the presence of rompin, a horse tranquilizer, in Griga's brain and liver, something Lugo and Dorball had planned on using on the couple to subdue them. Dorball then began to strangle Frank, while Christina, helpless, screamed. Prosecutor Levine told 48 Hours that she believed Dorball, juiced up on steroids, had no idea of his own strength, and either broke Frank's neck or suffocated him. The way the movie sets it up is that um, Danny, who's Mark Wahlberg, Mm -hmm. is in the room with Frank Riga, who's played by uh, a guy that's usually playing an Italian person, and he plays him very Italian in the movie, kind of like a mafioso almost guy, and that they're kind of like shoving each other back and forth, and that accidentally the weight from the bench press that's in the room falls on Frank Greek's head. Interesting. So it almost like absolves. So that's, again, the problems with having this quote true, which mm-hmm. they just all the marketing was like, it's true, true story. True. This, Even the, the poster for the movie says based on a true story or this and is then, a true story. I was going to say, some parts it says based on a true story. Other parts it says, like, this is true. So it's just hard to say, oh, well, they weren't really the heroes when, in this case, you have Mark Wahlberg's character, and you are they're trying to, like, absolve him of mm-hmm. the culpability of the murder. When, in reality, Adrian Dorball, like, strangled Frammy. He, he did hit him in the head, mm-hmm. but he was still alive, subdued him, and then either got pissed off or, like she said, didn't know his own strength, and is very personal, very violent, takes this man's life and it's played on the screen for laughs like there's a shot a really tight shot on the weight coming unspun from the barbell and then it clonks on the victim's head and Mark Wahlberg's like oh no it was an accident I totally didn't mean to do it and Christina you know comes in the room and then it's it's played with a lot less culpability I think than what was in real life so it's it is it's easy to watch the movie and go well they really aren't that bad of guys right a comedy of dark errors in the movie when in reality yeah. he had injected him with a freaking horse tranquilizer yes and hit him over the head with something that caused blood to splatter like all over the room oh yeah yeah and they that, make quite a joke funny. about how the the room is destroyed from all the blood and anthony mackie's like on his knees trying to clean it up to silence christina Lugo then injected her with the same tranquilizer while also handcuffing her, binding her feet with duct tape. According to the commission report, 
With one dose in her, the men demanded Christina give up the code to enter Griga's mansion. She was uncooperative, so they gave her a second dose. Christina answered a few questions, then decided not to tell them anything else. Who plays her in the movie? Um, I can't remember. I, I remember seeing... I know Rebel Wilson plays... She plays Cindy, Cindy Eldridge, right? The one that's Adrian Dorval's yes, yes. eventual wife. Yeah. The other one um, I recognize, but I can't remember her name. It's Kelly Lefkovich. Okay. The plan had been to subdue the couple and then transport them to a warehouse in Hialeah, where they would be tortured, just like Schiller, eventually signing over everything they owned. But Lugo and Dorval had gone too far. Frank Griega now lay dead in the bathtub, where he had been callously stashed so he didn't bleed out on Dorball's carpet. Christina teetered near death, pumped full of rompin. Yeah, and she's a small lady. Mm-hmm. So, yes. I mean, a couple doses of that, you're, you're donezo. Well, and also, these geniuses, I think, were not... Uh, medical professionals, good at math. Like, you know, if they're, if it says, you know, one dose is two milliliters, mm-hmm. they may be giving way more than that, or yeah. they may give 20, you know, not knowing. Over the next 24 hours, Christina floated in and out of consciousness, each time Lugo demanding to know the numbers to Frank's alarm system so he could access the house. Barely coherent, Christina mumbled a few numbers. She was implied with more tranquilizer, once again passing out. By this time, Jorge Delgado had arrived at the townhome. He had been up all night anticipating a call from Lugo, telling him the couple had been apprehended. He had expected to assist in the transport to the warehouse. However, he now found himself in an apartment as cold as a meat locker to mask the smell of Frank's decomposing body. Lugo's girlfriend, Sabina, had also agreed to help the men out. She too was unclear where the mission stood, after finding her lover crying in their darkened living room the night before, drinking alone. When she had asked Lugo what had happened, his only reply, through tears, was that Dorball had done something crazy, according to the Miami New Times. I think, yeah, the story starts to fall apart that we're professional CIA agents when you see the mess and the damage that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. With Frank's body in the bathtub, Christina just uh, on the brink of death. Dorball sleeps at the apartment that night with a dead body in his house and another one almost dead. Uh, Lugo goes across the street to his mistress's house and sleeps on the couch. Delgado goes home to his family. I'm always just floored when you you know that you've got this going on somewhere and you can mm-hmm. still go and like compartmentalize that and be with some other people. Yeah, and the banality. Yeah. They're just like, just living their life, putting gas in the car, mm-hmm. eating a sandwich, you know, knowing what you did and knowing. And doesn't that, wouldn't that weigh heavily on your soul? Any, you know, the serial killers, especially where they mm-hmm. have a wife and kids or whatever and mm-hmm. are living a reasonably normal life, you know, otherwise. So that's, and I also I think this kind of shows the bifurcation of Lugo and Dorball's response to it that. Lugo is genuinely fucked up about this. It sounds like, right? Yeah. He's crying. He's like, "Oh God, it all went." And Dorball's like, "Meh, I'm gonna go sleep in the other room." Yeah, he just fell asleep on the couch with Christina's body just like laying a few feet from him. Yeah, he doesn't. He's he's got some sort of emotional detachment. I don't want to say you know he's absolved because of being all jacked up. I think he's like he just doesn't value human life that much. Mm-hmm. 
Now Lugo and Sabina were headed to Frank's mansion to see if the numbers Christina provided worked. Unsurprisingly, they didn't. Furious, Lugo called Dorball back at the townhome and demanded he wake Christina up to get more information. But when Dorball tried, he discovered what they had done, telling his, quote, cousin, Oh man, Danny, the bitch is cold, according to the Miami New Times. In the end, Lugo and the gang had injected Christina with enough horse tranquilizer to kill four 1,000-pound horses. Yeah, she was not... I, I think after a certain number of the doses, there was no coming back without, mm-hmm. you know, getting her stomach pumped or something. Not stomach pumped, getting her, uh, like, blood <laughs> cleansed or something. Yeah. And they just kept on, kept on. And it was every time she would wake up and either not tell them something or tell them something that pissed them off, they would give her more. Mm-hmm. And it was just, there's no... It's Which so is, sad. again, what are you doing? No. Nobody can think straight. And also, English wasn't her first language, so she and she didn't speak a lot of English. Mm-hmm. So that coupled with she's traumatized. She just saw her freaking uh, boyfriend killed. She's pumped up on all this. Who thinks the best way to get her to remember these numbers and tell us is if we give her more stuff to fuck her brain up? And also, why would she know the combination to safes that wasn't, you know, maybe the door code to get in the house, maybe, but not that high, not high, but not that drugged. Yeah. To dispose of the couple, the men placed Christina's body into a large cardboard box. Frank's was stuffed into Dorball's couch, the same couch the gang had stolen months earlier from Mark Schiller's home. The two were then taken to the warehouse. Lugo and Dorball purchased a chainsaw from Home Depot to dismember the bodies. The chainsaw was too weak. The men then exchanged the chainsaw for something more powerful. The second chainsaw jammed on Christina's long hair as Dorball attempted to decapitate her. After these failures, the men turned to an axe. Prosecutor Levine told 48 Hours they spent hours chopping up the bodies of their two victims. Afterwards, Dorball placed the various body parts in multiple barrels buckets and set them on fire the, this is also played to comedic effect them trying to return the chainsaw and they have you know the hair is in it so it's played a little bit differently and then the cops or Dubois is at the Home Depot kind of behind them so it's like they could see you know there it's this dramatic moment but the Home Depot lady it's definitely meant to be funny mm-hmm. the Home Depot lady's like this has hair in it and Mark Wahlberg and I think it's The Rock I can't quite remember are like no it's not uh-uh that's not hair and it's supposed to be like hilarious that they try to cut this victim's head off and they jam yeah. the chainsaw yeah it's uh when I was reading this and there's a lot of detail that yes. we left out it is definitely not funny it's gruesome and it's it was straight out of I'm a horror film glad that i did it in the order because I, I you know did all the research and i watched the interviews with the victims the people impacted by it and then i watched the movie because i think if you didn't know the story behind it and yeah. it was just like based on a true story whatever you don't really know you would think oh they probably put that in there to be funny that's fake but knowing all the mm-hmm. details you're like oh no that's that's a person. <laughs> oh. Yeah. They also, during this time, before they got them to the warehouse, called another dude from, from the Sun Gym that they, that was a cop, but they knew, like, helped dispose of bodies. And they called him to come over and, and help them out. The guy came over, saw what was going on, and was like, y'all don't have your shit together. It and, is. And left. 
and then refused to help them. But, like, again, like, you're just – most people would try and contain how many people knew about this. Mm-mm, they're just calling everybody. They're, they're panicking, and they're just inviting in all sorts of outsiders now at this point. On May 28th, Lugo, Dorball, and a third accomplice Lugo had recruited from Sun Jim, the dirty cop, transported Frank and Christina's torsos in the 55-gallon barrels to an area of the Everglades. They then left their victims partially burned hands, heads, and feet in buckets near the 31-mile marker off Highway 75 in an area known as Alligator Alley. Finally, they dumped Frank's signature yellow Lamborghini on the side of the road. They thought they were going to get away with everything by burning the identifying features like the hands and the head and mm-hmm. things. But then they left a very <laughs> obvious car on the side of the road yes. that you're obviously going to match up that it's the owner. You know, I don't Anyone's going to no. notice a yellow Lamborghini just sitting on the side of the freaking road. Yeah, they went so far as to remove the teeth from the decapitated heads of Frank and Christina so they couldn't be identified that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... The level of gore and violence that they were capable of. Hands-on mutilation. Was shocking and horrifying to me that two seemingly, I mean, yes, they're criminals, they're conmen, but this is like next level beyond even some serial killer type of behavior. This is to be able to like, stomach that and do that to another human i just i can't understand how they got to that point how they could just do and lugo honestly was more bothered by it and he didn't do a lot of the dismembering he went in the other room and just kind of like was like what the fuck and but doorball like you said something had snapped in him and he was the one doing most of it and i think maybe with schiller it opened the door to hurting a person mm. and maybe then it escalated and they do they the whole bit the funny bit in the movie is that the rock is particularly nauseated by blood or the bodies or moving like they do a whole bit where Christina's hand falls out of the box while they're transporting it in the car and he's you know like making throw up noises and they're like be a man like why are you grossed out i don't know he's an empathetic human and he thinks this is horrifying well, also that the character he plays carl weeks wasn't even at this no they say he that he wasn't even he, involved in this whole thing he's a you know combination of like three or four characters and they just gave him one of the guys names but yeah, yeah he's cuz like you said they started bringing in way too many people and mm-hmm. from a screenwriter perspective you're like there's too many fucking people in this i'm cutting <laughs> them out i'm cutting the characters out but th- i think you're right that something snapped in doorball that he just he's like not just i'm here for the money that he kind of started liking mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. that you start pulling teeth out of somebody that's, that's horrifying yeah. yeah meanwhile frank griega's housekeeper esther toth had arrived at his home for her daily work she was shocked to find the couple's beloved dog, Chopin, barking uncontrollably. When she entered the home using the keypad on the door, her shock turned to terror. The place was a disaster. The dog had destroyed it, and Frank and Christina were nowhere to be found. Frightened, Esther ran down to Judy Bartus's house, Christina's best friend and the same neighbor who had dropped by the night Frank and Christina went to dinner with Lugo and Dorball. Upon searching the house and finding the couple's unused plane tickets to the Bahamas and their passports, they called the police. Yeah, this is not a Mark Schiller situation where he's, you know, 
maybe out on his own or he's too scared to call the cops or he would tell us these people had connection like more personal connections of the housekeeper the neighbor the best friend that somebody's immediately gonna look for them yeah oh they were very well known and they had a huge social life yeah so yeah there's a ton of people that start looking for them during the investigation judy bartus recalled to police that the night frank and christina had gone missing she saw two muscle-bound men at Frank's house in a gold Mercedes. As more information came to light, other involved players began to spill the beans on what they knew, including Dorball's former lover, Beatrice Wyland, and her ex-husband, Attila. The men had also been spotted by Lloyd Alvarez, another friend of Frank's, who had met Lugo and Dorball at his home the night he went missing, driving Frank's bright yellow Lambo on the highway before disposing of it. As more and more information was unveiled, suddenly, Mark Schiller's wild story of being kidnapped by gym rats didn't seem so outlandish anymore. Police contacted him and asked him to return to Miami to aid in the investigation. Yeah, so even a guy who met them at the house sees them driving. Again, they're out driving in at least sometime during the day or night when they were able to be spotted by Lloyd Alvarez. It was during the day. Yeah, that you're broad daylight going mm-hmm. to drive a very expensive, very flashy. It wasn't just like a black Mustang that there's no. maybe a lot of. It's a $250,000 car. Like idiots with no hat, no fake mustache, no sunglasses, just just them, just driving down the road. Yeah. On Friday, June 2nd, Schiller flew to Miami to once again recount his harrowing tale to investigators. This time, no one questioned his honesty. He gave them everyone's name that had been involved in the kidnapping and torture. Soon, warrants were being drawn. In Dorball's apartment, police discovered Rompen and several foreign passports bearing Lugo's photograph, but different names. There were also a ton of items from the Schiller home, including Mark's honeymoon photo album. Inside Sabina's apartment, police discovered Frank and Christina's bloody clothes, guns, a stun gun, handcuffs, and a Home Depot receipt for the purchase of the chainsaw. One thing that wasn't there, though, Sabina or Lugo. Police learned Lugo had fled to the Bahamas with Sabina and his parents. Five days later, authorities arrested him at the Hotel Montague in Nassau and brought him back to the U.S. to face his crimes. Yeah, the once the they got the warrants, the search warrants, it's like donezo. I mean, it was just game over. They had every single piece that they needed. They didn't bother to get rid of anything. Nope. The clothes... The receipt, I mean, none of it. Mm-mm. I mean, and it's all traceable back to yeah. both the victims and them as perpetrators. And now Danny Lugo's involved as parents. Yeah. Because he's and like, let's bring Sabina. more people into this. Let's now flee, flee the country. Yeah. They play it in the movie as, uh, you know, he's going to find even more treasures that offshore accounts and stuff. Oh, He may have been. With Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball arrested. Police set their sights on the other players involved. Throughout the fall and summer of 1995, Carl Weeks, Stevenson Pierre, Jorge Delgado, John Meese, Sabina Petresco, and Dorball's wife he married along the way, Cindy Eldridge, also faced charges. Almost all of them struck deals with the prosecution in lieu of a reduced sentence or dropped charges. On October 2, 1996, the State of Florida Commission on Capital Cases report shows that Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball were both indicted on 46 counts, including first-degree murder, armed robbery, kidnapping, extortion, money laundering, and racketeering. Jorge Delgado, 
who had confessed to his role in the crimes for a reduced sentence, received 15 years for the crimes against Mark Schiller and a concurrent five-year sentence for his role in the Griega Furton case, according to the Miami New Times. Yeah, the amount of people that flipped on him was uh, damning and alarming. I mean, yeah, nobody wants to go to jail. Not for them, yeah, no. especially, yeah. The And the uh, prosecutor said this made her case, like, this made her career for her, that not in, like, oh, she got so much, you know, press and publicity, but she said, you know, she was always about, you know, the law and justice, but she said just seeing how blatant, blatantly disregarded Christina and Frank were, mm-hmm. that they were so, like you said, that they, that was done to another human being, that she said every time she drives by mile marker 31 where parts of them were dumped, she's like, I just pray for them every time I drive by wow. that because it just set her on a path for, and so, as you can see, they weren't just charged with murder, they were charged with a million things. As they should to, be. Throw the book at them to really make sure that justice was served. In February of 98, trials began for Danny Lugo, Adrian Dorball, and John Meese. Lugo and Dorball's trials would happen concurrently in the same courtroom and heard by the same jury. One of the two key witnesses was Lugo's girlfriend, Sabina. Prosecutor Levine described her as, One of the most naive women I have ever met in my life. Sabina had legitimately believed that the gang was working with the CIA. Because of this, Danny and the gang shared many details of their plan with her, a decision that would come back to haunt them. The other key witness was Mark Schiller, who was able to describe to jurors all of the horrors he had endured. I mean, both of those witnesses, it's it's done. Yeah. Weren't the uh, Menendez brothers their first trial? This was They were tried by the same jury, separate trials, or maybe it was their second trial. Tried by the same jury, same judge, but their cases, it was like this, were concurrent? Yeah, I think it was one or the other. It was like they tried to do them both together, and then maybe they separated them or vice versa. I'd have to go back and listen. Um, and then this one, they do have separate juries to decide sentencing, but they all heard the same. They had one jury to hear the uh, facts for purposes of conviction. And that's those same jury members then, oh, sentencing was a different jury? Yeah, which it had that happens sometimes. The, like, you'll get called for jury duty and you'll come in and say, they'll say, uh, guilt or innocence is not an issue. It's already been confirmed. We're just here for you to listen to certain facts to determine whether someone's going to get so many years in jail, life in prison, or the death penalty. Interesting. So what would be the reasoning that they would have their trials together and not separately? Uh, what you'll see uh, is a little preview of our next episode because you would not want to have one person say, I was just standing there watching it and the other person did the whole crime and that's reasonable doubt. And then the other person goes on trial and goes, I was just standing there watching it and the other person did everything and that's reasonable doubt and you get zero convictions. So their attorneys are kind of playing off of one another too. Uh, yes, if you had the trial separated, you would. That And you might even have them one go and testify against the other and vice versa. But if they're together, then that kind of you're kind of eliminating like the middleman of confusion here. You're like, correct. Nobody can lie because we're all here in the same room. Yeah, you really can't stuff. introduce any kind of doubt when they're both up at the same time. Lugo and Dorball's attorneys did not put on a case at all, choosing to do nothing after the prosecution rested. The Miami New Times called the trial the longest and most expensive in county history, with more than 1,200 pieces of physical evidence presented and 98 witnesses called. 
John Meese's trial, however, was quite the opposite, with his attorney calling only one witness. 1,200 pieces of physical evidence. Because they left behind yeah. so much stuff everywhere. Especially, yeah, if you're get you're being put on trial for all of these crimes, you have, I mean, there's evidence of their racketeering. So there's going to be phone logs. You're going to have emails, pieces of pa- emails, letters, whatever, pieces of paper going back and forth, faxes, things you signed, things they you had them signed. They had all the shit they left in the trash can that Dubois God. and his bodyguard got. <laughs> You know, Ed Dubois like, I got a box for you guys. I got the garbage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's innumerable. Yeah. And then you've got the attorneys that are just like, you know what? Uh, we're good. We can't say anything to this. <laughs> I mean, what is your defense? I, when you have I, aggressive- Yeah, what is your defense? I guess, could a defense for doorball be the steroids? I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you're so when you try to argue that you didn't have the adequate mental state to, you know, because you have the two elements of a crime, which is the mens rea, which is the mm-hmm. mental state and the actus rea, so the action that you do. So you, you say, yeah, I cop to it. I did the action. You would have to have some expert that's willing to testify that by taking steroids, you will black out for 12 no. weeks or yeah. three years or however long they were playing this. There's just no defense. As nah. a defense attorney, you're there to object to make sure that the state does its job basically because you don't have a defense for this because there's so much fucking evidence there's 98 people especially people like sabina and mark who can say without a doubt the man at the table and they point at your client is the one that did this so your job as a defense attorney is to object to uh, inappropriate admission of evidence inappropriate testimony hearsay testimony anything that your client could hopefully use um to appeal it later so you okay. want to have a preserved error on the record so that you could appeal later but yeah otherwise you seem like you freaking sat there and didn't do anything for me and it's like no i was objecting to things yeah i mean so that that's makes their job. sense and yeah. i'm sure they tell them beforehand like we're not putting on a case because uh clearly you guys did this and we yeah. have what are we gonna just get up there <laughs> and yeah, filibuster. Was, like what? I mean, there's, there's you always no, have the option of filibuster. Uh, there's the there's nothing they could even say. Red handed. I mean, this is the most. Yeah, but I do appreciate that. You know, the the DA was like, "Oh no, we're not like half assing this. We're going all the way. We're going for the mm-hmm. maximum penalty under law. No pleading out because you know normally you would say as a defense attorney, listen, client, there's so much evidence against you. We're not going to trial." But for the, these two, the option's a death penalty. And if yeah. you're the prosecution and you think you can get that, why would you plead out? Take it to trial. Yeah. On May 5th, 1998, after only a few hours of jury deliberations, Danny Lugo and Adrian Dorball were found guilty on all counts. Then on June 11th, a jury voted 11 to 1 to sentence Lugo to death for the first-degree murders. An additional jury voted 8 to 4 to sentence Dorball to death as well. In both cases, the jurors deliberated for less than 20 minutes before reaching their death sentence decisions. This gets me because of the lack of unanimity for either, but also especially the lack of even uh, like, you know, Lugo was 11 to 1, but 8 to 4 on Doorball. I feel like Doorball was almost worse with the yeah. chopping up the bodies and the choking Frank to death. And he was shooting Christina like he was more the actual actor, I think, in a lot of the cases. Yeah, perhaps they painted Danny as the leader, which he was. Yeah. But it did seem by all accounts that as it progressed, Dorball was by far the more violent of the two. Yeah. And the one that was I mean, he killed Frank. Mm-hmm. 
they were both responsible for the death of Christina. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, all the he he pretty much did all that body chopping up the bodies and stuff by himself. Like you said, know. I'm sure they just painted it as you know he was Lugo was the mastermind yeah. or whatever. So the jurors that deliberated for less than 20 minutes that found them guilty for the death no. sentence are not the ones that heard the case. Correct. You would hear different evidence when so so they do that a lot of times because think about it. You sat through the longest trial in Miami County history, in Miami-Dade County history, with 1,200 pieces of evidence and 98 witnesses. You could argue that as a juror, you would deliberate for two minutes and say, You're give like, them the death him. sentence. I'm fucking done. Yeah, I want to I'm going to kill him because I've been here for 100 yeah. years and I hate it. Um, so when you do that, where you separate and you get it, you seat new juries to uh, to hear selected evidence to determine the death sentence. That's interesting. Yeah. To determine whether they get the death sentence or not. And you do that. And in Texas, it's different. And in Florida, it's different. And you do it based on the constitutional interpretation of your criminal procedure code that's been, uh, you know, challenged up to the Supreme Court or whatever. Wow. 20 minutes they decided. And as someone who is, these people are monsters. There's no doubt about it. As someone who is opposed to the death penalty, it's a bit shocking for me to think that in 20 minutes someone could decide that uh another person is not worth living anymore and at this point under florida law you did not have to be unanimous and they would kill you the state can kill you with a simple majority eight to four is those number 11 to one you're like there was one person that would have been me holding out like yes they're terrible they should be put away for life but we don't need to kill them too Eight to four, though, like you said, ah, that's yeah. not that, that's the numbers are still rolled. against you. But yeah, John Meese was convicted on thirty-nine felony counts, several of which ended up being overturned due to lack of evidence, including the murder charges. Having rejected a plea deal of nine years in a state prison, Meese ended up being sentenced to fifty-six years for his role in the crimes. I love hearing about people who don't take the deal and then get fucked by the jury. <laughs> the, the night judge. before, they were like, night before sentencing, you should take this deal. Nah. Well, Mm-mm. man, 96 or 56 to 9 is quite a difference. Yeah. It's not like, oh, they were going to give me nine and I got sentenced to 15. That kind of sucks. Or 56. 56 is so much more. And you have to wonder. I imagine his attorneys were like, take the deal. Take 30, the fucking deal. For 39 felonies and you're getting nine years, that is a sweet, sweet and deal. For him to say, no, I got this, is That's a, just so arrogant. My number one gripe about being a lawyer is that you can't, I mean, you tell people, here are your rights. Here's what you should do. Here are the, this is the implications. This is going to be the consequence if you don't do what I'm describing to you. And people go, nah, man, fuck you. I know better. <laughs> yeah. And then all of the horrible things that you said were going to happen is exactly what happens. Yeah. I imagine doctors probably feel the same, psychologists, where you're like, I'm just trying to help, man. Yeah. And everyone's like, no, no, I'm going to let the jury decide. You're like, you're like, why did you hire me if you're not yeah. going to listen to my advice? Yeah. See you in 56 years, bud. <laughs> Dude. On July 17th, 1998, Lugo and Dorball were officially sentenced. During sentencing, the presiding judge, Judge Alex Ferrer, Notice Danny Lugo was teary-eyed and nervous. On the other hand, Dorball was laughing, joking, and flirting with his girlfriend from afar. 
Yeah, Judge Alex was pretty disgusted with the <laughs> old doorball. Uh, it's wouldn't you be? Fuck, I'd be disgusted with everybody involved in this. It it's just I don't understand people's um mental state when it comes to things like this. Part of me thinks they are um dim and don't understand the consequences of what is happening mm-hmm. or they're mentally altered somehow by like substance or whatever or they have they're a sociopath and they just can shut off whatever and compartmentalize stuff and as a form of like almost a defense mechanism mm-hmm. they kind of just shut down and go about with like how they would normally behave i don't know that's it's, just it's, such it's, bizarre it's behavior. Shock. Yeah, it's it's anytime you see, and I know the Minetta's brothers were criticized wildly for it in the trials, like looking smug or laughing and stuff like that. But again, like not to defend any of these people that are murderers, but those pictures can often be taken out of context, snapped at just the right time. You don't know what was going on. Yeah. But in this case, the judge is sitting there watching this guy for quite a while Mm -hmm. flirting with his girlfriend yeah like blowing kisses smiling winking whatever and you're getting sentenced to death for very violent things that you did i as the girlfriend i don't think i'd be in the mood to flirt Mm -mm. though mark schiller was initially glad that the men were convicted he was disappointed they received the death penalty as he told 48 hours he didn't believe in capital punishment that didn't stop him however from flying back from Columbia to Miami to be there for the sentencing and give an emotional victim's impact statement before his captors. As Schiller left the courthouse, hopeful he could now... Excuse me. As Schiller left the courthouse, hopeful he could now put this saga behind him, his world was once again turned upside down when he was arrested by FBI agents on charges of $14 million of Medicare fraud. During his federal trial, Jorge Delgado, the man who made him a mark, helped the government make their case. However, Judge Ferrer, the presiding judge over Lugo and Dorball's case, did something unprecedented and provided favorable testimony at the sentencing hearing in an attempt to help Schiller's case. As reported by the Miami New Times, at the hearing, Ferrer said, I know we can consider anything at sentencing. This case was a very emotional case to sit through. It still bothers me to some extent, and I know that if things were just black and white, They could have computers do our jobs. But there's something intangible about this case that makes me feel like what he went through should be given some credit because I don't think it could have been worse if he was a prisoner of war. So, yeah, that's a shame when he flies back to see them sentence is I mean, they arrest him on the courthouse steps like they they pounced. And the prosecutor said, you know, of the doorball in Lugo's case said, I mean, did he commit a fraud? You know, did he commit Medicare fraud? Yeah. Should he have been prosecuted? That's up to the federal government. I mean, she kind of almost said it like, I probably wouldn't have gone after him. I mean, what are you really going to gain? What are you gaining from this? And what he literally was targeted because he did the Medicare fraud, mm-hmm. you know? So it's one of those like, what's the p- purpose of justice? Like, is the purpose of our justice system punitive? Are we punishing Mark Schiller for what he did? Is it restorative because you want to make him feel bad for what he did and he's going to be better? Is it, you know, he owes a debt to society, so he should pay it back? I mean, if it's punitive, the man has suffered enough. I mean, worse than any kind of prison. So those are kind of like 
it's you know it's competing theories of justice of like should you if as the federal prosecutor you have the opportunity to bring this case or not and then do you say well it's my responsibility to uphold the law and the law says if someone does this then i have to go after them even if they've already been significantly tortured and have you know none of the spoils of the money he's stolen did he really even get to enjoy yeah yeah his attorneys told him to you don't need to fly back for that sentencing. Just put Hint. it all behind you. And he kind of wanted, he was like, no, this is the final piece of the puzzle. This is something I need to do. I need to see, you know, speak my piece to these guys. Had he not flown back. Mm-mm. Yeah. But he also said he was super pissed and hurt that he had helped for years the prosecution with their case. Mm-hmm. Flying back, giving them evidence, everything. The whole time they know at the end of this, he's going to be arrested. Yeah. And they kind of just hung him out to dry and, and you know, kept him around to, to help their case. But I mean, to be fair, it's that two that separate, to him. you know, it's like two separate entities that are getting him. So the, the state level is, you know, getting the help from him. And then the federal prosecutors are the ones that are coming in. And, you know, Judge Alex tried, you know, he came in and said, please don't put him away. The prosecutor at the state level, I don't think has any pull with the federal, you know, people to say, don't do your job. But it is kind of shitty that overall, you know, you're helping and they say, okay, well, see you later. Yeah. Have a nice day. Go out, go out in the front of the courthouse. They're like, yeah, he gives this emotional victim's impact statement and everyone in there that was involved in the case knows as soon as he walks out those doors, his ass is getting arrested. Handcuffs yeah. going on. I think, like you said, he already paid his debt to the society as far as uh, punishment goes. Should he have to pay back the money? That's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe pay back your victims. Regardless that you didn't get a chance to enjoy it. That's not really the point. Like he doesn't, but he's also, they, he doesn't have any money at this point. No, he's, yeah, he's wiped out. And in theory, the victim was the federal government. So with Medicare fraud, he's not hurting, Mm. you know, the, his scheme, he was just taking money from the government. So we're all the victims as taxpayers. Yeah, that's true. He owes me some money then. You know what? Keep it. I think he's been through enough. I'm fine. After reading the detailed descriptions of the shit he endured, I'm right. I'm good. On March 17th, 1999, Schiller was sentenced to 46 months in prison for Medicare fraud, the most lenient sentence available under federal guidelines. In addition, he was forced to pay back $130,000 in restitution. I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this, but federal prison is day for day, so you don't get out early on good behavior. So he so served. he was in for 46 months to yeah. the day. Yeah. In April of 2013, Paramount Pictures released Pain and Gain, a film inspired by the three-part series in the Miami New Times. Directed by Michael Bay, the film received mixed reviews, with many criticizing it for being a dark comedy about very real and horrifying events. The families of the victims as well as the surviving victims, were especially traumatized. Mark Schiller, who received no compensation from the movie, told 48 Hours, The comedy was unfortunate because there was nothing funny about this. On April 21, 2014, Schiller filed a federal lawsuit against Viacom, Paramount Pictures, Michael Bay, the screenwriters, and Mark Wahlberg over Schiller's portrayal in the film. The complaint pointed out the many times that the film and its advertising claimed that it was a true story. Schiller specifically complained that he was falsely depicted as a deplorable, unlikable, sleazy, rude, abrasive, 
womanizing braggart who committed dishonest and illegal acts, used alcohol and drugs, was deprecating toward women, foreigners and others, and who was verbally abusive to his employees. Schiller alleged this was done in order to demonize him and generate sympathy for the main characters. Even though his character's name was changed to Victor Kershaw, Schiller alleged that change was not enough to prevent the audience from easily figuring out the movie was depicting him. The complaint listed each line and defamatory instance in the movie, including Tony Shalhoub flipping off the camera and screaming, Asswipe! The case was eventually settled for an undisclosed amount in April of 2016. Yeah, it's extensive. They're like, at one point, he he says something about, oh, you foreigners can't drive. And I mean, they do make him into an asshole. And so it's the question's always like, okay, is being depicted as a person who gives the double burden yell asswipe defamatory? Yeah. Uh, again, like we talked about in the first one, is it really all this false or do you just not want to see yourself depicted like that on <laughs> on screen? Is it stuff that you did? The other thing was, so they changed the name to Victor Kershaw and make him an Argentinian Jewish person. And Mark Schiller is Colombian Jewish and in the Michael Bay deposition, Michael Bay has this whole thing about how they're the prosecution, not prosecution, but the plaintiff's attorney, Mark Schiller's attorney, is arguing that they were trying poorly to cover up that it was Mark Schiller by making these, you know, minute changes, by making Victor Kershaw his name, by making him Argentinian instead of Colombian. And Michael Bay's like, no, it's funnier. Argentinian Jew is funny and Colombian Jew is not funny. And the plaintiff's attorney goes, I'm sorry, Argentinian Jew is funny. And Michael Bay's like, yeah, here, Hear it when you say it. It's funny when you say it. And the plaintiff's attorney's like, I'm sorry, I don't hear it. When oh, yikes. It's so yikes. And he also mentions Donald Trump in the complaint. He's like, you know, some people say things that are offensive and abrasive, but it's just like your old uncle or like Donald Trump. It's fine. And I'm like, oh, God. No, that's what not fine. Don't, We've don't. seen how not fine it yeah, is. Yeah, let's don't let's not bring that into it. Like Michael Bay, you are digging yourself just yeah. deeper and deeper in. So they he probably gave Mark Kershaw or Mark Schiller a significant amount of yeah. money. Yeah, he also wrote two books on it, so I think he, he's at least hopefully made some money off of it. Why would you sue Wahlberg, but none of the other actors? Uh, Wahlberg was sued in his capacity as producer. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and there were several other producers, but there was such a laundry list. Those are the pertinent celebs. Yeah, because I was like, well, he didn't uh, play him, but I didn't see Tony Shalhoub's name. But again, like, Tony Shalhoub shouldn't be sued. He's just doing what the script tells him to do. He didn't have any uh, dog in that fight or any say in what was going on. Suing people that either wrote it or produced it Mm -hmm. or, like, made it. And they also, I mean, the complaint is... Line by line by line, every single time that Mark that Victor Kershaw is an asshole in the movie, and it has timestamps, and I'm like, some associate at this big law firm had to watch <laughs> Pain and Gain and wait for Tony Shalhoub to be a dick, pause the thing, write down what he did, write down the timestamps, yep. and I was like, what a job, man. That is. Since being sentenced, both Lugo and Dorball have filed multiple appeals. Lugo claimed his trials for racketeering, the Schiller incident, and the murders of Frank and Christina should have been separated. The Florida Supreme Court disagreed, finding no reversible errors in the trial court's decision, and affirmed the convictions and sentences on February 20, 2003. His petitions to the U.S. Supreme Court were also repeatedly denied. On January 12, 2010, Lugo filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court, Southern District of Florida, 
but it was dismissed in July of 2011. Dorbell appealed based on the non-unanimous nature of his death sentence. This was in line with multiple other Florida death row inmates who appealed following a 2016 United States Supreme Court ruling that Florida's death penalty sentencing system, which allowed inmates to be sentenced to death even without a unanimous jury decision, was unconstitutional. As of now, he is no longer on death row until the prosecutors seek a new sentencing hearing. So he waits not on... They retroactively dismissed his sentencing because of this 2016 law that came around saying it's unconstitutional if it's not unanimous. Mm -hmm. Is that common where you something was done before the law came into play, but you can get it to apply to your case? Yeah, I mean, it would just depend on the wording in the Supreme Court decision. Um, But if the Supreme Court says now that we're seeing this law, that's been going on we're saying that every time that it's ever been applied back and Mm. forth it's always been and will always be henceforth unconstitutional then yeah you can go back and appeal they don't always do that but it just like i said it would depend on the wording so that kind of released a flurry of uh, rightful i would think appeals uh for death sentencing that i mean what if you get a uh, you know what is there 12 jurors and you get by one person by one vote you get sentenced to death isn't it majority, though? That's what I'm saying, by one majority. So you get a seven oh, to five. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you got yeah. seven to five, and you're like, oh, God, that was one single person yeah. thought I was a dick, and now I'm going to get executed. Yep. So both of them are no longer on death row. I think, so I was trying to trace Lugo's appeals. I don't know that he's appealed any further. That would be silly if they hadn't. Yeah, they probably will. So you just... Uh, so now you get a new trial... A not new a, jury and see if you can get a unanimous decision of death. So if they don't pursue a new sentencing hearing, then they'll just be in uh, in jail life without parole. Mm-hmm. And then if they do, then the state would have to, you know, get a unanimous jury to determine to sentence them to death. So I think in several of these cases, the prosecutors are like, they're already in jail for life. What are we, you know, it yeah. doesn't, it, you're not undoing the merits of the case. You're still convicted of premeditated first degree murder and a bunch of other stuff so it's kind of like why you know unless you just had a prosecutor or you know a district attorney who was like we're gonna reopen every single death penalty case and we're gonna try to go and get the death penalty for every single person that's appealed you just go we don't have the resources and is this really important like is this a priority for us to especially with the shift away from the popularity of the death penalty that Mm -hmm. we're not going to spend state resources when this person's going to be in jail for the rest of their life anyway. Especially when it was the most expensive and lengthy trial in Miami Dade history. You're yeah. going to do that all over again to maybe just get the same outcome that you already have. Yeah, especially yeah. eight to four. It's not like it was, you know, with Lugo, he was off by one. But, you know, when it's that much, like, you know, that it was like 50-50 with mm-hmm. giving Dorball the death sentence. Yeah, are you going to spend the time and the resources to do it? Mm-hmm. Well, what do we think? Anything else to add? I think we we covered it. I just, I mean, it's hard because I think we're both, you know, comedians and creative people and writers and thoughtful about making making up fake stories on stage and stuff. But there are certain things that I think are not ripe for the plucking for mm-hmm. humor. Or you could be inspired by something, but there's no need to follow it 
strand by strand down to the point of reenacting a vicious murder. Yeah, I've been trying to think if there's another movie like that. People have been sending, when we said, you know, guess what it is. There's four or five movies out that that are like that, like 30 minutes or less was one. And I'm trying to remember the other names. Where they, it was... It's horrible crimes that they depicted as kind of funny. Well, that's, yeah, based on a true story. I don't know that, I've never seen that. I don't know. But uh, this one is damning. Yeah. It's, um, like, I haven't seen it and I don't plan on it because what's the point? But I hope that um, maybe it sets a precedence, even though this was quite some time ago, that um, some things, yeah, some things you just leave alone there's yeah, no need to if if you like this story then just change it enough to where it's inspired by yeah something change the names or just you know use like little snippets of it in a brand new screenplay you write or something and that's mary carr is a famous memoir writer and professor and she's like there's nothing that says just because you're creating art based on a, something that truthfully happened that you have to be harmful when you do it. And may, if they're blonde, make them a brunette. If they're tall, make them short. If they're from Texas, make them from Arkansas. You know, there's certain things that you can change enough that it isn't propping up a person who suffered, in Mark Schiller's case, a significant amount, in Frank and Christina's case, the ultimate price, mm-hmm. if, and prop them up as, you know, characters. Yeah. Or... Just don't do it as a comedy. Yeah, that's true, too. And make it, you know, the make like what they tried, what Michael Bay tried to say they were doing was that Mark Schiller was the he was the hero the whole time. And it's like his face isn't on any of the posters. So I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure he wasn't. Yeah. And you didn't pay him for anything. No likeness or anything. And Mm -mm. if you're also trying to say you changed it enough to where no one would know it was him. But then in the same breath, you're saying he was the hero. Yes. Well, both you can't have both those things be true, Michael Bay. Which is why they settled for a significant amount of money. <laughs> yeah. And I think like you said, if it sets a precedent, it says if anything, it tells other studios Paramount Pictures maybe didn't lose a lawsuit, but they sure spent a shitload of money, probably not more money than they made on the movie, but sure. they spent a shitload of money and also some bad press doing this. Yeah. And it impacted the reviews too. Namely yours. You've given a scathing review, and this movie is probably the. Let's all it, check the Rotten Tomatoes. It emotionally harms me to say negative things about The Rock ever. <laughs> well, but and that's the thing. His character wasn't even involved in the because his name in the movie is Carl Weeks, right? I believe that is correct. That who is a real person that was involved in this? Who was involved in the Schiller stuff? He was not there for the Frank and Christina stuff. Dorbell and Lugo specifically didn't have Stephen St. Pierre. Or Carl Weeks be involved because they felt like they couldn't trust him anymore. So No, no, no. Dwayne Johnson is Paul Doyle. Okay. So he was an amalgamation of Correct. What I read, Carl Weeks and then like two other people. Correct. But yes. yeah, he wasn't that character itself wasn't even really there yes. in real life. Yeah. Yes. For any of it. So So it's like you could easily do things like take creative liberties to be more even maybe even funnier or more empathetic and less harmful. But yeah, I'm sorry. I think they I'm needed sorry to ch- the rock. They needed to change a lot of stuff about the how they portray the murders of Frank and Christina, namely the names of the characters. Yeah, pretty easy. That's pretty to easy. make it not quite as um, just like 
black and white as to what really happened. No, my final thoughts are that I love The Rock always, and I'm sorry. We do love The Rock, yes. He does seem like a very, uh, very nice man, and he loves French Bulldogs. <laughs> Go follow him on Instagram. Well, that's part two of our two-part series. Thank you again to Shelly for the recommendation. Thank you, thank you. Yes, um, this was a very interesting one, and one that I had never heard of. I had never yeah. heard of the movie or or this story, so I always like when I'm introduced to something brand new and jaw dropping. Yes, because <laughs> I, I didn't know that underlying where story. You're at all. Like Christ Almighty, what? <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, I always when I did read this stuff, I'm like, how did I not know about this? Because For it's sure. so wild. And shout out to the Miami Times because they, man, excellent reporting mm-hmm. and in depth, mm-hmm. and it was amazing. Yep, yep, yep. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including some fun new additions that we have begun rotating in along with our mix bags, something called The Wheel. Mm, the Wheel. And mm, there are sound effects that Tommy has mixed in. <laughs> to uh, Someone on Patreon was like, I am loving the laser sound effects for The Wheel. <laughs> I feel you have like, to. It's like a game show. I was going to say, I feel like my dreams of being like a morning radio show person has come true and mine of being a game show host done and done tommy you know what that's why you married him he makes dreams come true (laughs) you also have the fun perk of access to our discord server where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime share personal ghost stories or just post adorable pictures of your pets we'll also be hopping on occasionally and hosting monthly q a's where you can ask us all your burning questions For patrons not in the U.S., you also have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of conversion fees. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this billing option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon in the top right corner to join today. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. We recently added a new tote bag design and socks. It's also wintertime, so it's time to grab some hoodies. You maybe get a beanie hat or even a mug for all your delicious hot cocoa or hot coffee. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like any of those things, head to Sinisterhood.com and click on shop in the top right corner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood Christy. I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Instagram at Heather versus the world and on Twitter at MCK versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Jessica Croft. Kendall Zavodny. Brenna Guinea. Katie Martin. Alice Mead. Samantha D. Dubois. 
Ira Babb, Savannah Mouse, Molly Janane, Cam, Katie Cruzy, Jenna Garrison, Rebecca Jones, Kara Pinciotti, Amanda Roop, Amber Potterbaum, Danielle Guadarrama, Tony Moni, Eliza G, Melissa Huddleston, Lindsay Greth, Danielle Trudeau, Chrissy Van Mierlo, Suzanne Summers. The Suzanne Summers? It finally happened. Either way, we love you. Joan O'Brien. Christine Rowland. Laura Navalalainen. And Brittany Cirillo. Thank you guys so much for supporting the Patreon, especially during these trying times. We couldn't do it without you. We sincerely appreciate it. We're sorry if we botched your name. If you ever want your name pronounced um, a certain way, do what Brittany Cirillo did and put in little parentheses. This is how you pronounce my last name. That <laughs> We love that because then we don't have to say, oh, gosh, we hope we're not making anyone upset. But regardless, we love you. Thank you so much. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Sinister. <laughs>